Welcome to the Sports Medicine Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Dold, orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist. Each episode, we'll be interviewing an expert in their respective field and exploring a variety of topics related to sports medicine. Hey guys, and welcome to this week's episode of the Sports Medicine Podcast. We have a fantastic episode today featuring Dr. Eric Strauss from NYU Langone Orthopedic Hospital in New York City. I know Eric quite well as I did my fellowship at NYU a few years ago and got the chance and opportunity to work with him a bunch. He's an awesome guy, a really great surgeon, and he's really, really passionate about his work and his research, which focuses primarily on cartilage injuries around the knee. This week's episode focuses primarily on the management of cartilage injuries around the knee, but I think a lot of the points that we talk about today can be applied to other joints. Dr. Strauss is also on the cutting edge of some of the research being done today on cartilage injuries, and it's really fantastic to to hear him talk about this and some of the work that he's working towards and some of the research he's got lined up for the future. Today's podcast is sponsored by Vericell Corporation, the manufacturers of Macy, autologous cultured chondrocytes on porcine collagen membrane for the repair of symptomatic knee cartilage damage in adults. There are several treatment options that can help repair an articular cartilage injury in the knee. The recommended treatment is dependent largely on a number of factors like age, health, and the nature of the injury. One option is Macy, a third-generation autologous chondrocyte implantation treatment used for the repair of symptomatic cartilage damage in the adult knee. Macy is made up of your own cells that are expanded and placed onto a film that is implanted into the area of cartilage damage and absorbed back into your own tissue. The safety and long-term clinical benefit of Macy has only been studied in the knee joint. The safety and effectiveness of Macy has not been proven for patients 55 years or older. Lastly, I do take conflicts of interest and disclosures very seriously, and I think it's very important for the listener to be aware of those for a conversation like ours today. Dr. Strauss is a consultant for Vericell Corporation. Uh, That being said, we don't Uh, specifically focus on Macy today. We talk about all of the different treatment options for symptomatic cartilage lesions around the the knee, not really focusing on one in particular. So I don't think that that necessarily biases our conversation today. Finally, if you have any feedback for the show, please email us. The email is thesportsmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. If you ever have any feedback for the show, let us know. Follow us on social media to stay up to date on upcoming episodes. Uh, And if you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to give us a five-star rating on Apple iTunes Podcasts. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the episode. So we are, well, I guess I am, but we are back here at NYU Langone Medical Center and the Orthopedic Hospital, part of NYU Hospital for Joint Diseases. This is where I did my fellowship a few years ago. One of the uh, surgeons I had the privilege of working with is a guy I'm here with today, Dr. Eric Strauss. Eric, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. I'm glad to see you. So Eric is... I will let you give an intro in a second, but a fantastic doctor, a fantastic orthopedic surgeon, and just a guy who does the right thing. And I think that's overlooked in medicine and with doctors these days. It was a privilege to work with you a few years ago. I still have a lot of notes of stuff that I took during our surgeries. Uh, we spent a good bit of time here at about 530 in the morning doing, doing research meetings every week, but uh, it's good to be back here. Uh, well, it's great to see you. I appreciate the kind words. And I think you know, I do try and do the right thing every single time. Good. Give us a little bit. I know you're involved with the residency program here at NYU, but just give us a little bit of background about yourself. Sure. Um, I grew up um, in Syosset, which is a town kind of in the middle of Nassau County on Long Island, about 25 minutes east of New York City. Uh, I was the oldest of three. My parents were 
very encouraging and they literally opened every door to let me get whatever I wanted out of life. Uh, and that led me to medicine. I did my medical school at uh, Cornell. And when I was a medical student, uh, my anatomy professors were basically orthopedic surgeons. Um, and I got along very well with one of them. And he invited me to the OR the next day. And it took one shoulder scope. And that's all she wrote. I spent the rest of medical school trying to prove to myself that there was something else I wanted to do or like better than orthopedics. And nothing even came close. So I did my uh, orthopedic surgery residency here at NYU. And during that time, I, I became uh, very interested in sports medicine, but specifically cartilage surgery. And if you're going to do cartilage surgery, I, this is obviously a biased opinion, but I think the single best place to go in America is to do a sports medicine fellowship at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, uh, where I spent a year learning from the likes of Brian Cole and Nick Verma, and Tony Romeo, Greg Nicholson, Charles Bush Joseph, and of course, Dr. Bernie Bach. So I spent a year out there knowing that I was coming back to NYU to basically establish a practice in our sports medicine division with a specific interest uh, both clinically and academically in treating patients with symptomatic cartilage lesions. So that's what I've been doing for the last nine years. Uh, things are going very well. I'm very pleased with uh, the progress we've made. And as a side note, I'm very involved in the resident education here at NYU, uh, officially taking over the residency program as the program director as of January 1st of this year. Oh, congratulations. That's, that's uh, you were the, I think when I was here a few years ago, you were the assistant director. Correct. So we, uh, the announcement was recently made. I'm very excited to take over uh, what I believe is the best training program in America as of January 1st. <laughs> Not biased at all. Not biased at all. Awesome. And you have done a heck of a lot of research. I think you did maybe, was it pre-residency? You did a research year or during that? that uh, right? Correct. So between uh, my second and third year of residency training at NYU, they have a clinician scientist development program. So it's an extra year of training. And uh, I really just tried to figure out the best way to conduct both basic science and clinical research. And it was a, a very productive year here. Um, and it kind of planted some seeds for some of the things that I was able to kind of continue with once I was back in practice developing this kind of academic approach to sports medicine and um, cartilage surgery. Awesome. So that's going to be our focus of what we talk about today. We're going to focus on chondrocytes, cartilage, things that you're doing today. It's going to mainly be around the knee, but I think a lot of the stuff we'll talk about will be applicable to different joints. But, you know, the knee gets a lot of the press to do with cartilage stuff. I want to talk to you about MACI or autologous chondrocyte implantations, OCA, offloader procedures like HTOs we talked a little bit about a few minutes ago, patellofemoral lesions, tough to deal with. Some of the new literature, whether or not a one-stage cartilage repair procedure is maybe going to replace a two-stage procedure in the future or what your thoughts are about that. We'll talk about a little bit about meniscal transplants around the knee towards the end, and then maybe just a few minutes towards the end about uh, focusing on the future of cartilage surgery and some of the research that you're doing now. How's that sound? That sounds great. This is the stuff that has keeps me interested, gets me out of bed every morning. I'm excited to talk to you about it. Awesome. So let's start, let's start there. Focal cartilage lesion of the knee, let's let's say medial femoral condyle, weight-bearing dome of the medial femoral condyle. What's your, what? Just talk talk to us just about your approach here. How do you approach that lesion and your clinical decision making in terms of where you're going to go, what you're going to do? Perfect. And this is the you know I just finished a day in the office, and this is not an uncommon scenario. This is we saw it a few times today. So there's so many factors that you have to take into effect, both patient factors and lesion factors when you're trying to figure out you know how to kind of march down the treatment algorithm for a uh, focal chondral lesion. 
Um, so the first thing I'm going to want to know is, you know, you know, what's the age of our patient? What's their activity level? I want to get detail with respect to their symptom development. Was it an acute traumatic event? Is this something that developed over time and it's more of a chronic issue? But, you know, I think like for argument's sake, for discussion purposes, you know, it's a young, healthy, active male Correct. who had a knee-to-knee injury playing basketball and now has medial-sided pain. And then I'm going to ask them all sorts of associated type symptom questions. You know, did it swell immediately after the injury? Has it been, have you been experiencing recurrent effusion since? Are you having mechanical symptoms in the form of clicking, catching, locking? Does the knee feel unstable? I'm basically going to run through the, you know, basically the red flag questions to see, you know, how symptomatic is this lesion? Is the defect that we're seeing on imaging, does it correspond to where this patient has symptoms? Because that's important. And then, then we're going to start delving into some of the other patient factors that are going to be important, what their expectations are, you know, what they're hoping to get out of treatment. You know, do they have past medical history, past surgical history? Are they smokers? You know, just kind of putting together a whole, a whole patient picture. Good. And once we have that, and I, I really I'm like, all right, this does seem like this may be a cartilage, a, the cartilage as the source of their symptoms, then we're going to examine them. And we, and we, and we try to be as thorough as we can. I even almost, you know, the exam almost starts when you watch them walking into the room. Do they have an antalgic gait? I always get them up and see if, you know, see what their standing alignment looks like just grossly. Then we'll get them on the table and see, is there an effusion compared to the other side? You know, what's their range of motion? Is there any limitation present? And when you put them through the range of motion, is there any mechanical type crepitus present? Any catching, any locking? And then we'll see, you know, where are they tender? I pretty much do the, you know, the same exam every single time to ensure that we're not missing something. And if, in fact, this patient is directly tender, answer immediately where you'd think they'd be tender from that focal medial femoral condyle lesion, and they're not tender ever anywhere else, things are starting to align as this is the source of their symptoms and their trouble. So let's go through that. I'm going to sort of go exactly what you described. We'll go with a case example here, maybe. So 25-year-old guy, basketball player, healthy, no medical history. Everything sort of lines up. Nothing, normal x-rays, no significant arthritis in his knee. You see him in the office, he's pain directly anteromedially, pain to palpation on that side, tells you he's had about four or five months of persistent knee effusions. Whenever he tries to play basketball, his knee swells up, goes away over the next two to three weeks, but comes back directly when he runs on it. And you, you've seen in the office, no other pathology in terms of, well, we'll get to alignment in a second because I know how important that is, but his ACL, PCL, MCL, LCL, ligamentous examination is stable. What so I next? think, I, I'm glad you mentioned recurrent effusions because for me, recurrent effusions in a young patient is is probably the number one red flag. Something is wrong. And it, Some, whenever you see someone with that in your office and they got a big swollen knee, I always think to myself, something is going on here. I agree 100%. So that case, that gets advanced imaging. Yeah. So th- we get an MRI to see all the things that we're not seeing on a plain x-ray. And to be honest with you, while they're up there, if I'm thinking that this is a cartilage issue, they're also getting long leg alignment films. So let's just talk about that for a quick second. Why are alignment films important? So if we're, you know, we are talking about cartilage lesions and we're going to be talking about treatment, I want to understand when this patient is active, when they're walking, when they're playing ball, where does their weight go? Any malalignment, especially a deviation of their mechanical axis, which is the kind of path that their weight takes when they're active, 
any deviation of their mechanical axis into the affected compartment, basically a shift of their weight to the region of the chondral lesion is very important with respect to maybe understanding the etiology and the yeah. pathogenesis of the defect. But also, if you're going to treat it and you want to give that patient the highest likelihood of success after whatever treatment you're going to perform and the likelihood of getting back to normalcy, you're going to want to pay attention to that malalignment and likely correct it either concomitantly with your cartilage procedure or in a staged fashion. So literally every single patient that I'm concerned about a cartilage issue or considering a cartilage procedure, they get long leg alignment films. So this is, for the listener, this is three foot standing or weight bearing alignment films of the lower extremity. Make it real simple for yourself. Make a dot in the center of the hip and a dot in the center of the ankle and draw a line between the two dots to see where that line falls at the knee. If it falls medially where this lesion is, perhaps that's even the underlying cause or etiology of why this lesion has occurred in that area of the knee because too much of the weight in the lower extremity has fallen or been projected through this medial compartment. And if you're thinking about fixing a lesion in that area, you might want to also think about unloading or offloading the area with a concomitant procedure such as an osteotomy, which we'll talk about in a minute. Perfectly said. Good. Let's let's split this up. Let's say that let's say this guy first you get the you get the, you get we'll split it up into like sort of like a two by two box, four scenarios here. First scenario is that it's just involving the cartilage. Second scenario is that it's involving this cartilage and the subchondral bone, and maybe we can split those up into how big it is if that is something in your algorithm as well. 2A, or the second scenario I want to talk about, is normal mechanical axis. So you get the standing weight-bearing films and the alignment falls in the center of the knee, let's say. And the second one is that it falls way medial. Let's say it's like not even in the knee. It's so far medial. So the guy has very bowed legs, just to exaggerate it. Got it. First scenario, normal alignment and cartilage lesion. So to tell, tell, us, tell us a little bit about why that's important, if it's just the cartilage layer of the knee or if the subchondral bone, and you are you know more about this than, than most people on earth, but just why that's important, this, this whole picture of the subchondral bone, which is the bone below the cartilage layer in, in a joint. I, I'm so glad we're going this direction because to be honest with you, with my treatment algorithm, the status of the subchondral bone or the involvement of the subchondral bone is really what dictates which treatment path I'm going to approach. So if you have a patient that has a chondral lesion without involvement of the underlying bone, it's what we call a surface lesion. It's most likely a shearing type mechanism. So it's less likely the knee-to-knee mechanism that we're talking about with this basketball player. But more frequently, it's a shearing type mechanism. We'll see it often in the setting of like a patellar instability event yeah. or things like that. But the idea is that the underlying, the underlying bone, the subchondral bone is normal. So you have a number of treatment options that you brought up before. If you're, I usually would try and treat a surface lesion with a surface treatment. So for these shear type of uh, injuries... Um, when the underlying bone is not involved, I think that's a perfect indication for an autologous chondrocyte implantation, which has now evolved into what's called MACI, which is basically a matrix-associated uh, chondrocyte implantation. And we can delve as deep as you want into the detail of it. This is, I think, a huge step forward 
um, with respect to uh, the cell-based treatment of surface lesions compared to our second-generation ACI where we were sewing patches in and using fibrin glue. Um, it's an easier procedure. Um, the repair tissue uh, grows from bottom up. You can With Macy, compared to the previous iterations of this uh, type of uh, surgical procedure, uh, you could do it faster through smaller incisions and often in, in kind of what previously would have been difficult to reach places for second generation ACI. Yeah. I'm a huge fan and I've had really quite good results for these surface type lesions. So let's just take a little bit of background there. So he's talking about MACI and a ACI. So MACI is M-A-C-I and then there's ACI. ACI stands for autologous chondrocyte implantation. So autologous from yourself, from your own body. Chondrocyte is the cartilage cell and implantation. When you add M in front of ACI, it's matrix-associated autologous chondrocyte implantation. So this is a two-stage procedure. Generally, the first stage is done by an arthroscope where you take a cartilage biopsy. That's sent off to the lab for about six or eight weeks or so. And this ACI, or these chondrocytes, are incorporated into a matrix. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, so the... The biopsy, which is performed in the first stage of the procedure, which is, like you said, done arthroscopically, my chosen approach is to take uh, a few slivers, usually they, we say two to three tic-tac sizes, yep. two to three tic-tac sized pieces of healthy cartilage, usually from the intercondylar notch region. That gets sent in transport medium up to the lab in Boston, where they process the biopsy by basically... Uh, extracting out the chondrocytes, which are then grown in culture. Um, they have a very uh, impressive uh, process that in the end results in a collagen matrix, which is seeded with the patient's chondrocytes at anywhere up to 500,000 cells, five, I'm sorry, 500,000 cells per square centimeter. So we're talking a very high volume, very high concentration of basically healthy active chondrocytes which is then put on a carrier, a scaffold, for implantation into the patient's defect. So a couple of things. First of all, the, the sample is, people are obviously, always ask, patients always want to know, where are you getting this from in my knee? This is a non-weight-bearing part of the knee where you don't necessarily need this cartilage to bear load. So that's important. Number two, bit of a bummer, I suppose, in that this is a two-stage procedure. Fair. Yeah. But this is the only way to get your own viable cartilage cells back into an area of your knee that's been disrupted. The other, the other benefit, you know, if you see the silver lining, is that with that initial arthroscopic procedure, besides just getting the biopsy for your planned second stage, you also get the opportunity to look at everything else. Right. You're evaluating the menisci. You're checking the ACL. You're also, most importantly, getting a really good feel for the characteristics of the defect and the opposing articular surface that you get a feel for through the MRI, but nothing's like an arthroscopic evaluation where you can size it, you can palpate it with a probe. You're really getting a greater understanding of the defect characteristics. Looking for other lesions. 100%. Um, so there is some added, there is some other benefit rather than just getting the biopsy. But yes, it is It is a two-stage procedure. Now, when I was in residency with you, it was just ACI. So once we had taken the biopsy, it would actually come back in a little glass tube or container, which was a liquid. 
So what we had to do is go in there as a second stage procedure, open up the lesion, core it out a little bit, and then with 6-0 suture, which is basically the size of a strand of your hair, sew in a barrier over the lesion, make it airtight, use fiber and glue around it. The whole thing would generally take, you know, three or four hours even. And then with a pipette or a little syringe, syringe the ACI medium, which is a liquid, to stay under this lesion. And, and to be honest, it was, it was very technical, it was hard, and it took a heck of a long time. Now we've got this matrix associated. So it's Macy, where instead of it being in a liquid medium, it comes back to us on this sort of like a, it's like a, almost like a small sheet of paper or cardboard. Yeah, it's a patch. Yeah, little patch, which are able to now, using their new instrumentation, which is great, uh, isolate a patch of this and, and just simply stick it onto the lesion. Is that is that accurate what you say? I think the fact that this iteration of cell-based cartilage repair doesn't require suturing of the yeah. of the matrix changes the game. Oh. It makes it so much more efficient. And like I said, you could do it through smaller approaches, which I think is beneficial to the patient, less post-op pain, less post-op swelling. And importantly, you can get to defects that would have otherwise been very difficult to suture the patch in place. So I, like I said, this is a, I think it's a huge evolution in totally. our management of these defects. So go back to the shear lesion. Okay. okay. So you got this guy here, shear lesion, superficial lesion, doesn't involve the subchondral bone. Correct. So I think in my, like just, I, I know we, we took a little bit of a sidebar, but that surface lesion is my primary indication for a cell-based approach. I think it doesn't burn any bridges. The outcomes, not only in my own practice, but in the literature are quite good for surface lesions. It's using the patient's own cells to generate a repair tissue, which I think is very attractive. And um, you're giving it a, a good chance of regenerating a hyaline-like tissue. On that note, so I want to ask you about some of these commercially available products that are available. Cartiform is one. Arthrex makes that. Stryker has a similar product called Prochondrix CR. These are, well, cryopreserved fresh osteochondral allografts. So this is now they've taken someone else's cartilage cells. They've been preserved or incorporated similarly into a matrix and frozen. And now you're using that to treat these, a superficial lesion. Benefits, disadvantages, what's the, what's the difference? So I would hesitate to talk too much about it just because I don't use either product. Because in my own personal opinion, my two workhorses are either Macy or like a true osteochondral allograft approach. Right. I do see the benefit of an off-the-shelf product. In a lot of the initial iterations of the procedure, it, they involved a microfracture of the defect bed, which, as I'm sure we're going to discuss in, 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 in shortly, I'm, I'm very, very opposed to microfracture in any which way, shape, or form because I think there are better options out there that don't burn bridges. Perfect. There are definitely... I have colleagues here and across the country that have had, a lot, have had success with some of these off-the-shelf products, but from my own from my own kind of logical approach to these defects, if it's a surface lesion, I'd really prefer to use the patient's own cells, albeit with a two-stage procedure. And if it under if it involves the underlying subchondral bone, I want to treat that osteochondral lesion with an osteochondral solution. Got it. So we'll go on to the alignment about this in a second, but let's just say now that this lesion does involve the subchondral bone. What, why is that an important consideration? 
So that's indicating that it's not a surface lesion, that it, it, it's involving, like we said, the osteochondral unit. And there's, there's some debate as to how much subchondral bone marrow edema would be, quote-unquote, acceptable for a cell-based approach. And that's, you know, that, that's a topic for discussion. Dif- difficult for diff- questions to answer. Exactly. Yeah. But for me, if I see more than a few millimeters of depth of subchondral bone marrow edema, that means that the defect is, like I said, more than just a surface problem. And the analogy we, I used to hear over and over again when I was a fellow at Rush is you can't put a new tire on a bent rim. Right. So if you're going to basically tackle that osteochondral issue indicated by the fact that there's swelling and abnormality in the underlying bone, I'm going to go after that with a osteochondral solution in the form of an allograft or autograft if it's a small enough defect. Okay. So that's a great segue I guess into this next topic. Let's talk about the difference between OCAs, which is typically osteochondral allograft versus an OATS procedure, which would be an osteochondral autograft transport system or something something else. Difference being in that the allograft is taken from another human being who's donated their body for medical purposes. An OATS procedure, the transplant system is when you go into the knee and you take, as we talked about before, cartilage, healthy cartilage from a non-weight-bearing area of the knee and transport it to fill a defect in the knee. I think OATS is sort of slowly falling out as these new OCA or allografts become better and better and the processing of the grafts become better and better. Would you would you agree with that? I think that it there are there have been some developments that have kind of taken cases uh, that used to be utilized, uh, used to be treated with an autograft oats and are now are treated with f- the fresh cores, which basically uh, in the last maybe year or two, uh, a lot of the tissue banks are instead of just giving you a whole hemi- a hemicondyle or a whole distal femur, you can literally say, I have a patient with a 10 millimeter defect or a 16 millimeter defect, and they will ship you a fresh core, a fresh plug, either 10 millimeters or 16 millimeters in diameter, and you're treating the defect exactly like you would with an autographed oats, but there's no donor site morbidity. So, you know, I know we're a little bit, um, we're lucky here at NYU, but we're able to get some of these fresh cores in two or three days. Yeah. So, Versus, let's go through the approach. So let's say this guy has a bigger lesion per se, maybe. Can, uh, can we stick with the oats? Oh, we can, can yeah, we stick yeah. Go, with, go, so go with the oats. My algorithm here, I love an autographed oats procedure, Andy. I do. I, okay. I think it's great. I think it heals robustly. Patients, the, the bone wants to heal the bone. There's, you know, there there are areas of the knee where the you can relatively safely take an osteochondral plug. Um, my, my chosen donor site is usually the lateral trochlea just above sulcus terminalis. Yeah. But I'm going to limit my autographed oats to a defect that I can that will require at most two autographed plugs. My okay. favorite is just a single 8 or 10 millimeter plug that's transferred from an autograph in autograph fashion. Are you safely able to get a plug that size every time in everyone's knee? Great question. Um, it's actually something we put out a case report on not too long ago. That's why um, you're here. I'm, I love it. So I'm actually more comfortable taking more than one plug from a male with a larger kind of width of their distal femur compared to a petite female where I think more than one plug might cause donor site morbidity 
the case report that we ended up publishing was on a, I would call her a medium-sized uh, female patient, but she, we took two plugs to fill a, a defect that required more than just a 10 millimeter autograph plug. And she had mechanical symptoms post-op. Okay. And despite the fact that intraoperatively we ranged the knee and everything looked smooth and no problem, um, postoperatively, while the transferred plug on MRI looked fantastic, literally with like perfect reconstitution of the articular surface, the donor sites never really filled in. Yeah. And when we ended up biting the bullet and taking her back to the OR and watching her kind of track arthroscopically, it appeared that her patella was engaging with one of the donor sites. Ah, shoot. So we filled the donor sites with fresh osteochondral allograft plugs and literally went pers- away um, like extraordinarily quickly. That's a, that's so, a fantastic case. You got both options done working well. Not, <laughs> not not, ideal, it wasn't but. my wasn't my initial intention, right. um, but I, we learned an important lesson. So in my smaller female patients, I'm going to be a little less likely to consider an autographed oats if I think it's going to require more than one plug. But in, in a larger male, I think you can take up to two. Yeah. But anything that requires more than that, in my opinion, is going to end up being better treated with a single osteochondral allograft from a, a basically a matched donor. So we'll talk about that. But that, that gets the OATS procedure, fundamental problem in all of orthopedics where you're reconstructing and using the patient's own body to reconstruct a ligament ACL would be a great example but this so-called phenomenon of robbing Peter to pay Paul that's always it's exactly what's always said and like the question is is there truly a non-essential area of the knee that you can take cartilage from yeah. and most of the studies that kind of indicated um, the areas that we are taking donor plugs from are biomechanical studies looking at contact stresses and contact pressures and these were areas that were essentially minimal to non-weight bearing but if you if you think from like an evolutionary standpoint like cartilage is there for a reason so are the outcomes and the historical outcomes and the outcomes I've had for like single plug autographed oats cases have been remarkably good but it does give me it always gives me a little bit of pause right. and that's why I said if it's anything that requires more than than two plugs we're going to go to the allograft. Do you have a size that you sort of say, draw a line in the sand where you say, if it's greater than this, I'm going to an, an allograft? So, you know... I guess not really because it depends on the size of the patient, but... that's what I, th- I'm, I really do think patient demographics and, and uh, do make a difference here. But at the same time, m- my whole approach to this has changed. It, we have I always have the discussion laying an autograft on the table, but now that we have such easy access to these fresh cores these allograft cores, you know, I've had patients that really understand, really have a good grasp and a good understanding of what we're discussing and they want the allograft plug. So let's talk about that. Well, let's, let's go through two examples where it's a small one and just these fresh talking about just the allograft itself, but then also the process of a patient getting matched for this. Cause as you allude to here, these are fresh grafts. So for people listening, these are not treated grafts. They are, well, we were talking, I was presenting on ACLs and we were talking about that a few weeks ago in terms of ACL processing and so on. But the graft is not chemically treated and it's not irradiated and it's not even frozen. These are fresh grafts. So tell us a a bit about that. Yes. And uh, so as a pretty frequent user of osteochondral allografts, you know, you always have to be 
you know, grateful to the donor and their families for the, you know, you know, what they're giving medicine, giving our patients and, and help, you know, giving us another tool in our, in our toolbox for treating cartilage lesions. But the concept here is when you have a defect, a large defect, either uh, a defect for my opinion, in my opinion, that's something that require more than one or two autograph plugs, an osteoc or goes or, or has like a, an associated bony defect, like depth wise, that's greater than six or eight millimeters. It really is a phenomenal way to reconstitute not only the you know the underlying bone but the overlying cartilage with healthy adult articular tissue. So the concept here is, if we're saying an osteochondral allograft is the single best approach for our patient with a a functionally limiting symptomatic osteochondral lesion, we submit that patient's MRI to the tissue bank, and they basically are trying to utilize the MRI images to figure out a width a length of the patient to then find a donor that has the same dimensions because if you match them closely, you're ideally going to be matching the same radius or curvature of the femoral condyle. And what you'll do is when they have a, a, a donor that they feel will match your patient, you get a notice, an email with donor specifications and your patient specifications. And my opinion is that you want to basically have a match that's typically within 5 to 10% for each measurement. The closer you are to a dead-on match, the, more, the higher the likelihood that you're going to get a perfect reconstitution of the radius of curvature of the articular component of the graft that you're putting in. So to simplify this for the listener who may not have uh, as much experience in this, this is a round lesion, the knee, the condyle. And if you, I'm just looking up at your office here, you got some tennis balls from the U.S. Open. It's trying to match the curvature of a tennis ball to, say, a soccer ball with two different sizes of patients. And as you could imagine, if you took a 20 millimeter uh, radius or diameter out of the tennis ball and tried to put it in the same point in the soccer ball, it wouldn't be a smooth surface. And that's important. Correct. So I try to do my very best to get as close a size match as possible, but you are correct. It's a fresh graft. Um, it's not treated. It's not irradiated. Um, the tissue banks do a phenomenal job of 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 getting a patient history to really you know to to really accept only healthy you know uh, grafts from healthy donors. Um, the tissue is tested for everything under the sun prior to its release. But what's interesting is so the chondrocytes basically are alive, you know, depends on some of the, the medium that they utilize. But for the most part, let's say it's they're typically alive for 28 days after harvest from the donor. The first 10 to 14 days after a, gra- after a, don- a grafts have been harvested from a donor is really taken up by serologies and culture results and things like that. So what ends up happening is once a once everything, every box has been checked and it's been determined that you're, the graft is safe uh, for implantation, you're down to like two weeks. There's a lot to accomplish in two weeks. You, you got to get in touch with the patient, make sure that they're ready. You know, they have a, they, their social support networks ready, that their boss knows they're taking off for a couple weeks. Um, then you have to confirm with the insurance company that everything's authorized because this is not a, it's not a, not, uh, a cheap cheap, not a cheap procedure in any way, you know, in, in any way. Um, so there's a lot of wheels that you got to get moving in those two weeks. So 
So I, 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 with my patients, I sort of explain to them like they're like they're on a waiting list for a new organ or a, they're on a donor list, and they're sort of waiting on call as well for surgery. When they get a match, there's a it has to happen quickly. I do the same thing. Yeah, and you know, the sooner the better. But at the same time, I'm not going to sacrifice a, a perfect size match uh, for speed. Right. I want to make sure that you know we we got one, we have one good shot at this. Um, we want to we want to basically set you up for success so we're going to be relatively stringent as to what we're going to accept graph wise but I like I said my two workhorses at this point are Macy for surface lesions and osteochondral allografts for for an osteochondral lesion when you're putting in I talked to Cole Dr. Cole about this at Rush when you're putting in an OCA so an allograft do you soak it in anything so the data is very at this point is relatively thin and a bit variable um, with respect to soaking the graft. And just for the listener, the concept is we want to do whatever we can do to ensure that the bony portion of our implanted osteochondral allograft is going to heal quickly to the recipient site and do so without development of any subchondral cysts to you know try to minimize how much uh, how much inflammation it's it's basically evoking in the surrounding subchondral bone. So there's some question whether we should be soaking the patient the uh, the graft in the patient's platelet-rich plasma, bone marrow aspirate. Um, we've been soaking some grafts uh, just as as part of a little research question we have here in amniotic suspension allograft and good or bad. <laughs> jury's Don't out. Know. Jury's yeah. out. But yeah. um, the concept is: can we do something biologic to speed? the healing of that bony portion and limit the development of, of edema and cysts. And I have been soaking yeah. uh, gra- pretty much every graft in a biologic and I've kind of made my way through like different phases. Right. Um, I, I, I would, I, I got to say personally, you got to think that BMAC is bone marrow aspirate concentrate is the best thoughts, uh, but there's no data. To, I, zero, I'm not, zero there's no data. data and then, data. But then the other thing is you have to take into consideration. So where are you, Andy, where are you getting your bone marrow aspirate from? Great post question. Posterior crest? Always. Always. Because that's, you know, there is some data to say that the, the beam, the beam, JBGS, the bone marrow aspirate JBGS harvest. Study. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Then you got to take into consideration patient positioning, OR setup, additional time. So... While I'm and, not going to disagree, and it's not covered by insurance, so it's it's a if you're if you're doing this correctly, this is not a you know this is not a covered procedure. This is a cash pay procedure that the patient has to pay for outside of their insurance. So that's a huge consideration. These things aren't cheap. So I so, so I did have a uh, bone marrow aspirate phase, but I got a little frustrated with the added time of positioning the patient for the aspirate, the separate prep and drape. Then yep. performing procedure, then flipping them over for the for the knee cartilage procedure, yep. re prepping, re draping. But I did have a phase, and we have that as kind of our you know one cohort for our future data analysis. Then I went on a, a pretty long phase of utilizing uh, platelet rich plasma PRP. Yeah, and then on this, just as a from purely from like a, from a research perspective, for the last number of months, we've been we've been uh, soaking our grafts in an amniotic suspension allograft, and then we'll have the ability. Um, with post-operative imaging to compare the results of all three and see what, at least at our NYU experience, um, what the impact of these various biologics are so um, that's, with respect to osteochondral allograft 
healing. I want to ask you about that. We say thirty seconds. What's that trial? So what's the what are the, what's the other arm in that trial? One of the graft is being soaked in in some amniotic suspension. Oh, I just have my historical cohorts. My my okay. bone marrow aspirate cohort, which I did for six months. Yeah. My platelet rich plasma cohort, which I was doing for probably like a year and a half, two years. Yeah. And then we're gonna do six months of, of the amniotic suspension allograft. Phenomenal trial. And what would be great is then. To be honest with you, from a science perspective, to then have a six-month period where we're not soaking Don't grass do anything. in anything. Oh yeah, That's which right. is which. To be honest with you, which is likely going to happen. And then you have four you have four cohorts, and hopefully large enough numbers where you can kind of kind of sift through some of the noise, and then hopefully have you know which data yep. to support what others are going to be doing with their graph moving forward. That's a great trial. I look forward to reading that. So let's go on to. So we've talked about surface lesion, subchondral bony involvement. Now the patient has malalignment. So this sort of changes things. So when you're, if you're listening here, if you try and treat one of these lesions, whether or not it's a surface lesion or has subchondral bony involvement, you're sort of paddling against the current or upstream if you aren't addressing the underlying potential etiology, which is malalignment across the knee when you're doing this procedure. In, in other words, you're setting yourself up for failure. Correct. I couldn't say, couldn't say it better. Everyone, any, everyone will agree that there are tremendous forces that go across the knee with various activities. If you're going to put a patient and take them through a, a large cartilage repair surgical procedure, I think you want to maximize the likelihood of outright success. That's why, like we said, any patient that I'm even considering a, a cartilage procedure on is going to get a set of alignment films specifically to identify any extent of malalignment present. And and Andy, I have a very low threshold, you know this, yeah. of unloading the affected compartment if we're going to be doing a procedure uh, to treat a symptomatic cartilage lesion. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're here. You, you, as I said at the start, you do the right thing. And this is a, this is a difficult decision because you are, number one, this is a, doing an OCA on someone's knee is a big operation in itself. But combining an OCA with a high tibial osteotomy is is another level, I think, of not only complexity, but also recovery, outcomes, that sort of thing. I think that it osteotomy in general is one of the harder... I'm sure it's the same thing for you. It's one of the totally. harder discussions to have preoperatively in the office setting. Because the, you you're going to cut my bone, Doc? Yeah. You're going you're gonna to take a saw and cut my bone? And that's why I think... You know, I always have a couple of examples of cases that I have like ready to review with the patient. And it, when they see that their mechanical axis is literally passing exactly through their defect, and then you can show them a successful case where that defect was treated and the patient was was realigned or unloaded with an HTO or a DFO, it all makes sense. So it's going to take you a little more time in the office, but that's time well spent because then you're then you're doing the right thing for that patient. What do you use as your, let's just, we'll, we'll sort of skip on DFOs. That's maybe less common that someone's valgus, but. Uh, vi- Andy, we did that this morning. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm just kidding. Let's you're, do HTOs. You're, so let's, let's stick to HTO. So someone's very varus and you are going to cut them, their bone on the medial aspect of the proximal tibia. So it's a high tibial osteotomy or an HTO to try and correct them so instead of being bow legged you're going to try and make them straighter to make that mechanical axis pa- pass more towards the center of their knee what 
what's the indication? Like, when do you, when do you, because this is difficult, right? When do you bite the bullet? If they're, let's say their axis is falling, okay, if it's falling far medial to the inside of their knee, sure, that's an obvious one. But, you know, it can maybe be just medial and not in the center of their knee. What's your sort of indication or algorithm to, to and you're, you would be aggressive on this, which I appreciate and respect. What's your, what's, when do you do this? Um, yes, I, I will acknowledge that I'm actually a pretty conservative guy in, pretty, in, in every other aspect of my life. I'm aggressive when it comes to unloading a compartment. a compartment in the setting of a cartilage procedure. And if it's borderline like you're describing, that's a discussion I'll have with the patient explaining the pros and cons and why I'm even thinking about it. But if the, if the mechanical axis passes anywhere truly in the compar- affected compartment and it's not and the lesion is more than just like a simple chip shot, eight millimeter oats. I'm likely doing an, an unloading osteotomy. Okay. What on that note? So this is, and you know, it takes a while for these osteotomies. Literally, where you're taking a saw, you're opening up the compartment, you're putting some sort of implant in the compartment with some bone graft to get it to heal. But you're, you know, this is like you've had a big time fracture with a gap in your in your tibia. This takes a while to heal. What do you tell people in terms of, let's take this basketball, 25-year-old basketball player. He's now had an OCA of the medial femoral condyle and, a, and an HTO. Let's say it's a 8, 10-degree correction of his axis. What do you tell patients in terms of their likelihood of getting back to sport at the previous, previous level? All right. That's a great question. Um, I'm going to deviate you for a quick sec. Um I am pretty conservative with my post-op re- rehabilitation and protocol after a cartilage procedure. So very commonly, especially after after a Macy or a large osteochondral allograft, my patients are going to be non-weight-bearing, utilizing axillary crutches. Let's call it for usually on average about six weeks. Okay. If you let's say let's say take the typical HTO patient without without an associated cartilage procedure, they're going to be non-weight-bearing or toe-touch weight-bearing. On cr- using axillary crutches for six to eight weeks. So my my kind of logic here is, at most, you're probably adding maybe one to two weeks of extra non-weight-bearing time and really increasing the likelihood that your cartilage procedure is going to be a success. So I don't think that's the hard sell. I think it's more than just the, the patient wrapping their head around the fact that they're getting their bone cut and realigned. To then answer more specifically your question is, you know, we actually are just putting together and submitting a systematic review of return to play following pretty much every cartilage procedure that was performed. And it's it's relatively similar to, there's been other studies out there like um, so, like Aaron Critch put out a paper and Cole has a paper, the Italians have a paper. Um, but on average, you know, there's so many factors to take into account, but on average, I would say that, you know, probably like 70 to 80% of patients are capable of returning uh, to their usual activities. And depending on what their preoperative baseline is, at least in my practice, I'm not going to restrict them with respect to letting them back to sport at any level as long as they've regained full range of motion, good quad strength, good endurance. But with respect to the actual data on return to play, especially for contact athletics, uh, I think the data is a little bit thin in the literature. But the, what we included in our systematic review, I think it's pretty much along the lines of about 70 to 80%. Okay. That's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. We're going to move on. We're going to talk about patellofemoral lesions. So huge. Can we go back to just one more second? Yeah. Just as an anecdote, 
from my, I know, you know, and you know, I, I've been doing a fair number of, uh, of osteotomies, yeah. both with and without cartilage procedures. I got to tell you on the whole, those are like among my happiest patients. They set once that, once they get early healing of their bone, they can sense a difference and, and it really changes the game for them. It's, 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 I agree. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. So I really, for the listener, if you're on the fence and you're thinking about whether or not to include an osteotomy in your approach to one of these young, healthy, active people with a cartilage defect, do it. I really yeah. think it's good. It, it, it has so many benefits. Even young, young orthopedic surgeons, and I'm sure you can remember back to earlier in your career before you had done too many of these, it's it, mentally as a doctor, it's sometimes a tough decision to make for yourself. You're just thinking when you're sawing that bone, like, what the heck am I doing here? You know, <laughs> is this guy really going to get better? It's but great. you're right. When they do get better, they love it. It's awesome. Yeah. It really is an awesome procedure. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's HTO's cartilage lesions of the condyles. We didn't really talk about DFOs, but that's another offloading procedure similar to the HTO. It's a distal femoral osteotomy usually done for to correct a varus lesion. So you're Opposite, or sorry, a valgus lesion, so opposite of the of the varus lesion for the HTO. I want to talk to you about patellofemoral lesions. This is patellofemoral syndrome, probably as a sports medicine physician, one of the more common things you're going to see, I think. And with that, chondral lesions isolated to the patellofemoral joint, very common. You agree? I do. Okay. Difference Differences in tre- treating this joint. I want to I just talk to you there. Macy versus OCA. Thoughts? So... My underlying principles remain the same. I still think Macy is a wonderful procedure for surface defects of the patellofemoral compartment. At the same time, if there's evidence of underlying bony involvement where it's an osteochondral problem, I've been utilizing osteochondral allografts. Any issue, I guess anyone who's thinking about this realizes that there's not as much bone in the kneecap in the patella. Any issue using an OCA with you when you're when you're treating these lesions? I'm so glad you asked the question. There are some technical differences yep. with our approach here. Um, so on average, I, I like to keep, for an osteochondral allograft implantation, I like to keep the bony portion of my graft usually around six to eight millimeters. I want it, I don't want too much there. Um, and we'll stick on the thinner side uh, of the patella. But you have to realize that what's hard, there's two aspects of, of treating a patellar lesion with an osteochondral allograft that, that I think are difficult. One, the surface topography yeah, totally. is very difficult. And you, you know, on a femoral condyle, if you've done a good job with your alignment guide and putting in your guide pin, you're going to be pretty much perpendicular. And when you're doing your measurements, it's like six all around, seven yeah. all around. Maybe you're one millimeter off north or right. one millimeter off west. And you just, a, you just know it's going to be perfect. Because, yeah, yeah, you really <laughs> took that little bit of time, right? Yeah. The patella, you could be where like... You have a you have like a, a pretty large difference in like the depth, right. which then makes preparing your plug like hard, much more, much more difficult. Back and forth, back and the forth. The other thing is the pate- the bone of the patella is often really hard, super hard. Yeah. And I'm always you know I, in the back of my mind when I was doing things pretty standard, I was just worried you know at some point am I gonna am I gonna fracture patella when I'm using the the reamer? So just a little tip for for uh, anyone out there who's doing these. Um, let's say for argument's sake, we, we're going to be putting in a 20 millimeter osteochondral allograft for a central lateral patellar lesion. What I'll do is I'll put my guy, I'll use my alignment guide and I'll get my guide pinning in just like usual. But instead of going right to the 20 millimeter reamer, 
I'm going to start with a 10. I'm going to use basically an ACL reamer. Okay. Basically, uh, I mark it out to that six or eight millimeters of depth I'm looking for. And basically, I think it's a smaller diameter hole, but then it serves as like a stress relief hole. That once you then go larger with your reamer, you're decreasing the likelihood of causing an iatrogenic injury. So I've been doing that for the last like year and a half, two years, and I it's I think it's phenomenal type. Yeah, it's yeah. a good one. Do you put the pin through the kneecap? I usually do. Yeah, I think so too. Because stability of the patella, you need it to be rock solid when mm, you're reaming. I agree. Because if you're off, you turning you turn that perfect circle into a, into an oval, then you're in some trouble. Totally. Um, but here's an interesting question for you. So as I mentioned, we've been doing. I've been doing more and more of these fresh cores from the tissue bank. Yeah. So if you have, if I have like a, 50, a 14, 15 millimeter diameter defect, the easy approach here is to call the tissue bank and say, hey, I need a 16 millimeter plug. They send me a plug, which you have to realize these cores are most commonly taken from the medial femoral, femoral condyle, right? Correct. Yes. I know where you're going with this. We, I, then, I implant, we then implant... <laughs> the plug and it looks phenomenal from a surface standpoint you've done you everyone's high-fiving you did a great job of restoring the articular surface but guess what the cartilage thickness of the native patella is often quite big the thickness of the fresh core you put in is less so when you get your post-op imaging if you get post-op imaging which i do i always get i get mris on everyone at nine months or 12 months just to see the status of the implant that I, or the repair tissue that I put in. And you're pretty psyched about how the articular surface looks, but there's a bony step off. And the question is, does that matter? And no yeah. one knows the answer to that. Yeah. And that you won't see that as much if you're going to use a patella for a patella, but then you're potentially waiting weeks or months. Right. I like to err on the side of caution and get a patella. That's what I've been, I've been doing as well. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk to you about a case. This is a real-life case that I have right now that I'm managing. Patellofemoral lesion, 45-year-old distance runner. She's very fit, um, healthy, no medical morbidities. She has a full thickness involving the bone, so subchondral bone uh, involvement, chondral lesion of her patella lateral facet. Okay. She's valgusly aligned, so, you know, wide hips, narrow knees. How valgus are we talking? Um... I don't know. I've ordered the standing films now. Okay. She's getting fair, them fair. now. Uh, let's say she. Let's say her her axis is is falling towards the lateral side of the knee. So it's definitely lateral to the trochlea. So 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 sort of middle of the lateral compartment. Let's say. Okay. Um, very fit, skinny. Um, what? And again, here now we're talking about osteotomies. So she's got an isolated chondral osteochondral lesion of the lateral patella facet the trochlea is okay so not a kissing lesion and i'm sort of i'm, get, I'm getting these uh, alignment films i'm glad we're doing this today so i can i can get your opinion on this but what's your what's your approach so this this is another one that i, I would love it if she was the last patient of the day in the yeah. office you could sit with her as long as you because she's gonna have a lot of questions when you start yeah. throwing things at her so if it's an osteochondral defect like i said you need an I'm doing an graft. osteochondral solution. So we're going to talk to her about submitting her MRI to the tissue bank and like trying to get as close to a size-matched patella allograft as possible. But then we're going to start getting into the ideas of unloading not only the patellofemoral compartment, but is her valgus malalignment contributing to the issues that, that she's had, the symptoms she's having, the development of her defect? 
it's quite possible this that her valgus malalignment is contributing to the pathogenesis of her issue. Especially, um, especially in a runner who's taking your your knee through so many cycles, right, and and loading that joint on every step, right. Exactly. So there are some cartilage surgeons that say that no matter if you're treating a patellofemoral lesion that's affecting either the lateral trochlea or the central lateral patella, every every procedure should be augmented with an unloading anteromedialization tibial tubercle osteotomy. The idea is that we know that the patellofemoral compartment can see upwards of seven to ten times body weight and that the anteromedialization procedure will transfer that will transfer will not only reduce load but transfer load from distal lateral to proximal medial so the idea is you can in theory unload your damaged area not only with respect to the extent of weight bearing forces but you're going to shift it to an area of the patella where the cartilage is right. healthier and thicker so to take a step back on this when we're talking about the medial femoral condyle or lateral femoral condyle of the knee, we're drawing a line between the center of the hip joint and the center of the ankle and seeing where that line falls. For patellofemoral lesions, it depends more on what we call the Q angle. So that's the angle between the quadriceps tendon and the patella tendon. And when that ankle becomes increased, this is a risk factor for patella subluxation or wear of the patella on the lateral side, so the outside of the knee, because that axis between the quadriceps tendon and the patella tendon is pulling the patella laterally, leading to increased friction and force in that lateral patellofemoral compartment. Anything to add? I just think that the axial cuts on the MRI are going to be extremely telling. Yeah. Um, if there is excessive tilt... Yeah. If there's any shift or subluxation, like there's there's definitely a number of red like imaging red flags where you're going to say, hey, I really should be considering unloading this this uh, compartment. And like I said, there are plenty of surgeons out there that say if if I'm going to treat you have to any anything patellofemoral, especially something on the lateral aspect of the trochlea or the patella, this gets unloaded. So in order to unload the joint, you have to do what? Eric was alluded, alluding to here, this TTO, typical, tibial tubercle osteotomy, or an, we call it an AMZ, an anteromedialization of the tibial tubercle, where, again, you take a saw off, and in that front bit of your knee where the patella tendon attaches is called the tibial, tibial tubercle, you saw the tibial tubercle and shift it medially. So you're straightening out the axis between the quads tendon and the patella tendon to kind of offload the lateral or outside of the patellofemoral joint. And I think what's important, what's very important with the kind of, at least the technique that we're utilizing here is that the tubercles uh, is transferred anterior as well. So two ways to unload the compartment. Correct. So you're shifting medial to la- you're lateral to medial, but also you're elevating the extension mechanism to reduce the overall forces. And I, it's dramatic. The, the biomechanical studies on a well-done AMZ are pretty impressive as to what can happen to patellofemoral contact stresses uh, following the procedure. In terms of this patient we're talking about, what would you say, and I know this is, these are tough questions that there's not a definitive answer for, but she, like any distance runner, who's, it, it's an integral part of her lifestyle, what are the chances that she continues running at that level? So 
you're saying if you know if her patellar lesions treated and she has an unloading tibial tubercle osteotomy. Correct. What's the what? Tell us. Talk to us about the recovery and what are the chances she gets back to? Doing okay, what great she question. Does. And we, we're going to ignore the valgus malalignment for right now. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. That makes it, that, that's, <laughs> that obviously makes this a little bit don't easier talk, approach. Don't talk, don't add in a DFR. Okay. So the, not, not a small procedure. Um, she will be non-weight bearing or toe touch weight bearing postoperatively in a hinge knee brace initially locked, locked straight, um, for a period of usually around six weeks. But at the same time, this is a patient that we're going to be tracking with serial postoperative x-rays to really see how things are going. Um, before we start advancing her too quickly. Um, I do utilize CPM, uh, especially for cartilage surgery within the patellofemoral uh, compartment, but also tibiofemoral compartment as well. Right away? Um, I Well, it depends. With an osteochondral allograft, I'll let them start after their first shower, which is post-op day number three. Okay. Um, I think it's a pretty robust procedure. That plug's not coming out. Right. And I want to get things moving. And to be honest with you, this, with the screws we're using for the tibial tubercle osteotomy, they're rock solid. So yes, have it, you have you migrated to the headless compression? One hundred percent, all in. They're awesome, eh? They're awesome. Yeah, it's it, that's changed the game. I yeah. I I can't even remember the last last time I took out TTO screws. Right. Yeah, because they're not prominent anymore. Um. So I I unlocked their knee brace at the first post op visit. Um. Usually zero to thirty, just to get them used to like getting around with the knee flex, and then I have them uh, advance their flexion usually ten degrees every five to seven days. And their goal is that we're going to get to 90 degrees of flexion usually by six weeks and full range of motion by three months. Um, they come in usually for their second post-op visit around the six-week mark where we'll get post-op x-rays. I just want to make sure everything's looking okay and you see some signs of early um, early healing of the TTO. And then we'll progressively advance their weight-bearing. Okay, um, Usually I have them advance 25% of their weight every 48 hours. Uh, and then they'll once they're walking around, hopefully with little to no pain, they'll ditch the brace, they'll ditch the crutches, and they're pretty much walking around pretty normally. And that's usually, at that point, eight weeks after their operation. How long do you keep them in the CPM? Um, as long as their insurance company will authorize utilization. It's right. usually two to three weeks. Okay. Um, I think there's benefit to it. I really do. Um, and then once they're fully weight-bearing, and let's say they've achieved full motion by three months, then their focus is like really on strength endurance. Quartz. And I have to be honest, I'll let, once the TTO is radiographically proven to be healed and they've got full motion and their st strength is improving, I'll get them on a treadmill. If they have an altered access to an altered G treadmill, we'll start yeah. that potentially even a little earlier, but I'll let them get on a treadmill and see how it feels. So an Alter-G is an anti-gravity treadmill. One of the things, sort of a little bit of a game changer, I would say, in terms of runners and getting people back when they can work on their gait mechanics without putting 100% of the load through the knee. I, I love. I think it's a phenomenal yeah. uh, physical therapy tool. So we'll get them on a treadmill, usually, right, you know, usually around that four or five month mark. And I got to be honest with you, Andy, if they're feeling good and they've met all their criteria, I'm going to let that runner do whatever she wants. You know, at, at three months? No, I let her. No, like I said, I'm hoping for full range of motion by three months. Usually, get them on the treadmill, jogging by four to five months. Okay. And once they're feeling good, I usually say when you can do a mile at reasonable speed on the treadmill, I'll let you go outside, and then the, then it's just sky's the limit for them. I'll let them literally do whatever their knee will tolerate, uh, utilizing uh, pain and post activity swelling as red flags to back off. And I have exactly your patient, maybe not so much, not as much with the valgus, but 
I have a bunch of like high level cyclists and long distance runners that have had patellofemoral cartilage surgery with an associated tibial tuberculosteotomy back to doing everything they want. And to be perfectly honest, you know, there is such, there's a kind of a dearth of information or data present in our literature. So uh, here at NYU, we've compiled uh, our last couple hundred, I think it's just about 300 tibial tuberculosteotomies uh, to provide return to work data and return to athletic data and how long it takes to on average and percentages. And we're looking at, at, at more than three quarters of patients getting back to sport uh, but it can take up to it can take anywhere from six to nine months before they're feeling a hundred percent. In your experience, quicker outcome from an OC, quicker return to whatever it is you want to do from an OCA versus a Macy. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Well, part of it also is I think uh, surgeon induced, um, just because you know it's solid, right? But well, also no from OCA. like, yeah. but also from like a biologic standpoint, we're like I'm keep on, I always picture these patients' cells like actively growing. <laughs> Me too. And yeah. I'm like, listen, it's only been a few months. I know you look great. You got good motion. Your strength's improving. Um, I'm gonna protect them consciously or subconsciously more than I'm gonna do that plug that like felt like a rock the second we like pushed it in. Right. So uh, I do get, like I said, I do get post-op MRIs on every patient, usually at the nine-month mark, to see how their Macy's filling in or what's the status of their osteochondral allograft, mostly looking for the status of the underlying bone. Right. And if things look good, that's when I kind of set them free. So that's good, though. That's um, That might be a little bit different. You, you get an MRI on everyone at nine months. Yes. Okay. And with Macy, you know, you know, I still am probably holding them out from full context for until the one year mark. But yeah. I'm like very encouraged if the if the defects filling in nicely, there's no subchondral bone marrow edema. Yeah. That's when I can let them start pushing it with respect to sports specific training, and getting their endurance up to in anticipation of that full return unrestricted at a year. Okay. We've been going for about an hour. I want to just touch on a couple co- uh, topics here quickly. Get your opinion um, before we before we shut down. There's this new procedure, a guy, Alberto Gobbi. Alberto Gobbi is an Italian guy. He does this one-stage procedure. So I guess one of, the, one of the negatives, but as we talked about, maybe not so much a negative, of the Macy procedures that you have to have two operations, one where you get the cartilage cells, the next where you implant the cartilage cells. But there's this one-stage alternative cartilage repair where they use this hyaluronic acid membrane. They soak that in the patient's bone marrow aspirate concentrate, and then they put in or implant this membrane similar to how you would do it with a Macy, but it's a one stage procedure. Do you think that this has a, has a role here? It's a great, that's a great question. And we're always paying attention um, to what's going on in Europe, in Israel, in Australia. Cause um, so, so that's, that's awesome that you said that this has been available in Europe for a while now. There's some long-term data on it. But Macy has also been available in Europe for a, a, a lot, much longer time than it has been here. I mean, it's just become available to us uh, last three, four years ago. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, listen, things are th- new. Technology is sometimes difficult to bring to market here. The FDA is the, the, they're strict. There's uh, very expensive and sometimes time-consuming pathways that need to be taken to get new technology to on the market to treat our patients. So like I said, I um, if you're in the if you're in the cartilage repair world, you're paying attention to what's going on overseas. Um, this past weekend was actually the International Cartilage Repair Society uh, meeting in Vancouver, which was which is awesome. And we're hearing, you know, about really cool things that are being developed abroad that we're gonna pay attention to and see how long it takes to get to this US market. But just to to get to your 
question. Kobe's an impressive guy, and he's you know his his impact on cartilage surgery and cartilage literature is obviously impressive. But at the same time, while there he is presenting some medium to long longer term data, I'm always hesitant to jump on a product that only is really being shown to have efficacy and success with their developers. Right. So. I would love it if there was like a big multi-center trial looking at this because if it, if there is a one-stage approach, it's super attractive. But at the same time, one of my talks at the ICRS this past um, weekend was um, utilization of biologics for cartilage injury in early NEOA. The data on BMA super mixed. It's super mixed. It's super thin. There's some there's some papers that say it doesn't work at all. There are others papers that say it does, and there's others that the jury's still out. So part of the reason there's so much variability and variation in the preparation, the process, are we comparing apples to apples with some of this stuff? So I love the fact that guys like Gobi are out there trying to figure out ways, one-stage ways to treat our patients and their defects, but I'm a little hesitant to weigh in on what my thoughts are on the products. I haven't seen it or used it personally. Right. And I'm a little hesitant on just basing it on uh, one center's yeah. uh, experience. Great. We're going to have to come back and do another episode on, on meniscal transplant because I think we've been going on this and, and it's awesome. But I just want to get you quick. We'll talk about it for two or three minutes here. Meniscal transplant. A lot has happened in the last little while. I know. I think you, we were talking earlier. You did a case this morning. Yes. Where, where are we with, with this? So this is a procedure I really like. Um, I did, okay. Like we said, we, we actually did a lateral meniscus transplant this morning. That w- went super smooth. Um, I think that as the as we as surgeons get more comfortable with the instrumentation and these grafts become easier to come by, we're going to be seeing more and more meniscal allograft transplantations uh, in coming years. There's definitely a need for it. It's not perfect. I really, when I'm presenting it to patients, I present it as a bridge procedure. We want to buy them. A number of years, ideally 10, 12 years of symptom relief and functional improvement, but understanding that it's not a perfect solution. Um, these are often young patients that have undergone a, a prior meniscus surgery where the tear was such that it couldn't be repaired, leading to meniscus insufficiency. And we have a lot of check boxes that need to be evaluated. Is the patient normally aligned? What's the status of their cartilage in that in that affected compartment? Are there ligaments intact? If the perfect patient is like the patient we did this morning where it's basically an isolated issue in a healthy young male with normal alignment and really good-looking articular surfaces. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, we could, uh, This is a whole different yeah. conversation, man. But yeah. um, for me, I use a bridge and slot technique for all yeah. my laterals. And I've been using a double bone plug technique for my medials. We have one. We have one coming up on Tuesday. Yeah, I remember when I was here, we 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 developed that technique with the interference screw in the slot. You still doing that? Oh, uh, we are. We are <laughs> definitely doing it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. This no, is this is tough surgery. This is it's it a lot of steps. It doesn't get much more technical than than doing a a meniscal transplant. It's stressful because the patient is young. The rest of their knee is pretty good. You're trying to preserve as much of their anatomy as possible without, you know, invoking any sort of iatrogenic injury on their knee. There's cutting of bone where, you know, once you've cut a bone, you can't go back very easily. And it's it's tough. And I got to be honest, it's like, I, don't, I would call it maybe almost feast or famine. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, I've had a couple of cases that have done so remarkably well that it's like borderline unbelievable. We had a uh, we had a guy about that had a meniscus allograft uh, done medially six years ago. Okay, he actually got back to full activity tore his ACL. When we went to do his ACL, obviously it gives you an opportunity to look at his meniscus. That's so awesome, Andy. If you didn't know that this was a, an allograft meniscus, I swear you never could have told. Really? So yeah, that's... that. That's feast. That's it, feast. And then you have other patients where it, yeah. it fails quickly. Right. So we're going to still sort through some of the variables that we have to pay closer attention to to, to ma- maximize success. But it's an it's a great procedure that I really hope that you know more and more of the people out there listening to this um, get accustomed to and start utilizing in their toolbox. Right. We'll finish up here. Um, what What's the future? What's the future for cartilage surgery? It's a great. That's that's obviously the holy grail question. And every time we I give a, a talk on cartilage surgery, you always put that holy grail up. So what would the holy grail be? Holy grail would be some sort of approach, ideally one stage, yeah. that regenerates hyaline cartilage with normal architecture that integrates with the surrounding tissue, is durable, and restores the normal distribution of weight bearing forces. So basically, recreating. Embryonic development, right? So what the cool, the really cool stuff that I've been keeping an eye on is some of the stuff that's coming out of Asia with respect to electrospinning and kind of nanoparticles. Tell us about this. So obviously nothing happens in a vacuum. When someone, when there's the generation of cartilage tissue in during, you know, embryogenesis or in response to, you know, an injury, growth factors are present at different phases to impart, you know, differential effects on on development. And the idea of nanoparticles and electrospinning is you can basically create a scaffold where certain portions will degrade at various time points or in, ex- or in the presence of different environmental changes. And at that point, will release their associated or integrated growth factor. So you're with me? Yeah. So for argument's sake, you have a scaffold where you know that you want growth factor A to be present within the first 48 hours. Right. So... In the in these nanoparticles, the electrospun uh, portion of that scaffold, growth factor A's associated scaffold portion is going to disintegrate within that 48 hours and release growth factor A. Then we know that we want growth factor B to be present somewhere between day four and seven. And whether it's time release or exposed to a pH change or mm-hmm. To trigger it. Yeah. Something to trigger it. Then growth factor B will be released from the scaffold. And you can, in theory, once we have a better understanding of what factors are present at what time, you can start to really create a local environment that's going to maximize the ability of whatever repair approach that you did, most likely a cell-based approach, to generate an articular cartilage tissue in, per- in perfect architecture. That's the, that's the kind of future. The regeneration of, honestly, what... You know the embryon, embryogenic articular cartilage so that can integrate with the surrounding tissue. Maybe, maybe starting off not a not a first stage procedure, but maybe something done percutaneously with a with a needle aspirating the the native chondrocyte, and then being able to manipulate the chondrocyte in these in vitro co- conditions that you're describing. And then, just as a final thought, you know, and if you remember from your time with us, I'm still really interested in in synovial fluid. And, yeah. personal- were, and personalized were, uh, medicine. When I was here, we did that study with the ACL injuries. We took the synovial fluid out of their knee, and then you looked at what sort of conditions 
were inside the knee. Tell, you can tell me if I'm wrong after this, but inside the knee during an ACL injury that affected the cartilage. That so. Um, that's actually still my population I'm most interested in is like the, because we know that after an eight, so this is a whole different, yeah. this is like a whole, di- we can talk for days about this, but even a, after an ACL injury, even after a well done ACL reconstruction, the reported incidence of arthritis is like 70%, 10 to 20 years later. And we're the question is, why? And the question is why. Right. And most of us will think that the seed for that post-traumatic osteoarthritis is planted at the time of injury. So the idea is, well, if it's, if that seed's planted at the time of injury... Can you change it? Can we change it? Right. So you, if you're going to change it, you need to understand what it is. So we've been drawing synovial fluid on pretty much every knee we've been operating on for the last like nine years and then looking at different categories of patients, different injuries, different surgical procedures. And the idea is we're getting to the point where we can start getting these patients back and doing imaging, repeating you know aspirations and seeing, is there a grouping of growth factors? But more interestingly, Andy... What about the genetics of these patients? Right. Is there a genetic profile or a synovial fluid local environment profile that can predict a good outcome versus a bad? And once we've figured out the players in this game, we can change things. At the time of injury or surgery, you can inject growth factor A or anti B and change that natural history. Then we're That's talking it. we're That's talking like real deal history. stuff, man. Yeah. Once you can change, understanding natural history of conditions is so important to any orthopedic condition. But once you have a true handle on the natural history of something like this and are able to study how to change it, that's when you're really going to affect outcomes. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. So we're, we, some exciting stuff we, we got going on here. And it's, awesome. it's, it's good to be a part of it. Thanks so much for doing this, man. Uh, listen, this is great. That, yeah. that that time flew by. Yeah, I know. I've been watching the clock here going, I can't believe we've been talking for an hour and <laughs> 15 minutes. But this is fantastic. Tell us tell us about yourself. How can patients reach you or get to come see you? Um, I My name is Eric Strauss. I am a sports medicine specialist at NYU Langone Orthopedic Center uh, in New York City. Um, our office is on the east side on 38th Street between 1st and 2nd Avenues. The direct line is 646 646- Five zero one seven two zero eight, and I'm also always open to getting any emails or questions that you have. You want to run a, your case by me? My email is my name e r i c s t r a u s s m d at gmail.com. and always out there to help fellows and fellow surgeons and uh, interested folks in need. One of the best guys out there, Eric Strauss. He's also got Joe Namath. And Brian Trottier signed pictures on his wall. When I saw Trottier, I knew you were a good, good dude. Uh, he was my favorite Islander growing up. Do you know the uh, the the trivia stat for Trottier? I'm not sure. I, I think, don't quote me on this, he sco- scored the most points in the NHL in a period of all time. Oh, is that, is that true? Four goals. At, I'm pretty sure. Four goals, two assists in a period. So you realize, Andy, so I grew up, on Long Island at the in like the heyday of the Islanders, four cups. Yeah. yeah so Trotz was my favorite. How are the uh, How are the Isles doing? Um, uh, we play tonight. We play against the Hurricanes. I think you know we we beat the Jets and we we lost uh we lost a tough one uh, two nights ago. Yeah. But we'll see. I'm a big Barzal fan. I think he's great, and yeah. you know I I trust uh, Lou and I I trust Trot. So we'll see what happens. Awesome, buddy. Thanks for doing this, Eric Strauss. I'll have all of his information up online. Uh, get in touch with him uh, for for any cartilage related problems. Thanks, buddy. Pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Sports Medicine Podcast. If you'd like to stay updated on future podcast episodes, please follow us on Instagram at the Sports Medicine Podcast. Like and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. A special thanks to our sponsors, Veracell Corporation, the manufacturer of Macy, autologous cultured chondrocytes of porcine collagen membrane for repair of symptomatic knee cartilage damage in adults, and Star Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. This episode was edited by me, Victoria Wickham, and produced by Josh Jones. See you next time on the Sports Medicine Podcast.